I'm so glad that you came to Robson's World. This is Alan Robson with the Grizzly Tales podcast. Now, I know from time to time you've had a little nibble. Might have been an earlobe. Could have been a girlfriend's bottom lip. Many of us have tasted tongue in our mouths and various other bits too. But would you have bitten it off and swallowed it? Would you have chewed whatever you had in there? And that's the question. Because there are certain types of cannibals. Now, if you go back far enough, and I'm talking 15, 20, 25, 30, 35, 40, 45, 50,000 years. Now, that's 48 thousand years before there was any proper religion of any kind people ate one another they ate what they needed to eat to survive and that's one of the types of cannibalism that exists today i'm starving the planes crashed i'm gonna have a slice of buttock there's no question about it i'm staying alive i'm on a rowing boat in the middle of the pacific ocean my friend's a bit poorly when I hit him with this, it'll be more poorly, but I might survive. So you can kind of understand that. But at the other end of the scale, it's, I don't want to go to the supermarket, I'm deranged and psychotic, and I'm just going to eat the person that I happen to be with at the time. There's also another type of cannibalism, which is religious. When people's religion tell you to eat other people, because it will help you, it'll make you stronger, make you fitter, make you cleverer. There's an awful lot of religions that tell you a lot of malarkey. Now, the drug cartels in Mexico, did you know that there are strands of them who are cannibals? Now, I think most people have known over the years, seeing the things that they've done, that they're insane inhuman and they want to terrify people by doing the worst things to them well two drug cartels in mexico said that the only way they would hire somebody to join their cartel was to eat a living person's heart to prove their loyalty that meant they had to kill them and then eat their heart while it was still beating now, those kind of cartels wanted to weed out anybody that might want to tittle-tattle to the police. And I assure you, the people whose hearts were eaten didn't want them eaten. They would have preferred them pumping blood around their bodies. There are so many incredible cannibalistic stories from around and about. I'm just going to share a few with you. Now... The Japanese army during World War II. You may remember, if you are steadfast and loyal, that many years ago we had somebody on the show who told me that they escaped from a Japanese prisoner of war camp at Tamajau. On the way down the river, he passed a lot of barges loaded full of dead prisoners' bodies. And it seemed that there were people going through the bodies, and those 
that were riddled with sickness, illness, gangrene, that kind of thing, were dumped unceremoniously overboard, and the rest were taken away to feed Japanese troops. In New Guinea, there was a major ration cut to the Japanese army in December 1942 because they didn't have enough food to feed them. They were spending all their money on weapons. And that pushed the Japanese soldiers over the edge and the majority of them survived due to cannibalism. Many of the prisoners of war from America and Britain would tell stories of how a prisoner was marched out of their barracks and butchered while they were still alive and their skin cooked on skillets whilst they were still dying. That food served up to Japanese troops and on the orders of their superiors. This is how one prisoner of war talked about how the Japanese did this. Every single day in the Tamajau, the Japanese overlords began pulling prisoners out of our barracks. A prisoner would be taken out, sometimes butchered while they stood there, on other occasions shot in the head, and then cooked immediately by the Japanese cooks and the soldiers queued in lanes to eat the flesh. I know that this is true because I saw it happen not just once, but about 30 times while I was there. The rest of us were taken miles away on murder marches just to get rid of us. And on the way, 15 men died of malnutrition or sickness. And if somebody died and their body was in decent condition, they would feast on the dead body of our friends and we had to watch them. They were sick then, and it's sick even to think about it now. I did warn you, we do grisly tales here. Now, there was a woman called Omema Ari Nelson, and she was Egyptian, and she travelled across to the United States of America in the middle 80s, where she fell in love with William Nelson. Now, he was much older than she was. She was only early 20s. He was 56 years of age, but he was quite wealthy because he was a pilot. So the couple married within about four days of the meeting one another, many people believing that she only married him for his cash, and immediately, within two days, Amema claimed that he began to sexually abuse her. So on Thanksgiving Day in November 1991, she stabbed her husband in the head with a pair of sewing scissors and then picked up a clothes iron and finished him off, beat him to death with it. She didn't stop there. Afterwards, she got a cleaver from the kitchen and a carving knife and she chopped his body into pieces. She boiled his head on the stove, boiled his hands in a pan, and began to mix his innards, his lungs, his kidneys, his heart, with Christmas turkey. And then 
she put the whole thing through something that we don't have over here, but Americans are very fond of, the garbage disposal unit on the sink. It chews everything up and spits it out. She cut out his ribs and cooked and ate them with a barbecue sauce. His penis and testicles were also cooked in a frying pan. And after a couple of days, there were rings on the telephone and knocks on the door looking for the husband. He's, he's due to fly planes all over the place and he hasn't shown up. Where is he? Well, she instantly became a suspect. He'd only known her a few weeks and they were married. Omema also had poor William Nelson managed to take a look back into her past, had a whole catalogue of bizarre and dangerous behaviour back in Japan. At one point, she tied up a boyfriend, stood with high heels on his groin, then held a gun to his head until he gave her money. And she also said, she only chopped her husband up so that she wouldn't be able to meet him in the afterlife because it says that in Egyptian mythology. Now, this woman is due to get out of prison in about four to five years' time. So, cannibalism exists. It's around us, and whether we like it or not, it's there. Japan, again, although... Not in Japan, a Japanese guy who went to the Sorbonne, the famous French university, Izzy Sagawa, murdered his friend, a Dutch girl called Reni Hartevelt, while they were studying in his apartment. He killed her. He spent a couple of days raping her corpse and then fed on her body for two days until he was quite a plump little Izzy Sagawa. He froze some of her remains, obviously, because he couldn't eat it all at once, and he was arrested trying to dump other parts of her body in a lake. The police saw him, caught him, and then tracked him back to their house. Sagawa said that he wanted to eat her because, well, she was so tall and she was beautiful. Sagawa was only four foot ten, and he believed himself to be ugly, and he certainly was on the inside. He was later deported to Japan, and due to a whole batch of admin mess-ups, he was allowed to go free in 1986, after the psychologists and doctors said he was sane. They said it wasn't his fault. Sexual perversion had caused him to commit murder and he became famous he gives talks nowadays he makes money from public appearances he's written a couple of books he writes restaurant reviews and he's able to compare what he eats now with what he ate then during one conference Sagawa tried to explain the whole killing his best friend and he said this, I lost an important friend and I really regretted killing her for a moment. 
What I truly wanted to do was just to eat her living flesh. Nobody believes me, but my ultimate intention was to eat her, not necessarily to kill her. To this day, I still think, if only she'd let me taste her, just a little bit. And this guy's out in public. You could walk past him any day. Now, if you happen to be walking around in Germany, you might come across... Joachim George Kroll. Well, you wouldn't really. He died in 1991. But his offspring are out there. He was called the Ruhr Cannibal, the Duisburg Man-Eater, and he was a serial killer. He raped and killed 14 people and ate at least three of them. All of his victims were women. Nine of them were under the age of 16. Three of them were under ten. When he was arrested, he was convicted of eight murders, but confessed to even more. His IQ was super low, only 76, which is equivalent to a child that's about eight or nine year old. His mom died, and there was nobody to feed him, and he didn't know how to feed himself. He was skinny, weak, a bedwetter, he was completely mad and he didn't rape his victims until they were already dead and he said he masturbated with a rubber sex doll every time he came home from his crimes because he was really aroused. The blood and eating flesh turned him on. He was captured, he was sentenced to life of course and he died from a heart attack in 1991, not nearly bad enough. Now you know there is in Washington a very famous river called the Potomac but Potomac was actually a Native American chief, a Red Indian chief and back in 1763 this great chief Potomac and other Native American tribes decided to lay siege to Fort Detroit. They wanted to kill the 120 British soldiers that were there at the time, to drive the British out of their land forever. During the siege, Potomac's forces killed numerous soldiers and all of the civilians that lived in settlements outside the fort and in front of the fort, just far enough so they couldn't be shot, they butchered and ate one of the soldiers Six months later, when the siege failed completely, Potomac took his tribesmen away and left living witnesses who told of the soldier who was taken hostage. This is the official war record. The whole night they kept drinking whatever liquor we had brought with us and making a most hideous yelling, dancing and singing while they were feeding on poor Captain Robson's body. Could be a relative. This shocking piece of barbarity was practised only by some of the Indian tribes to the northward. The Six Nations, who used their prisoners when alive, much worse than those whose captives we were, yet never eat human flesh. They, of course, do not devour it for want of food, but part of a religious ceremony or from a superstitious idea that makes it prosperous in war. 
They teach their children to be fond of human flesh, even from infancy. The next day my master's son brought some pieces of the body into the hut and roasted them upon a stick and endeavoured at the same time to get me to eat it after assuring me that Englishman's blood was very good to eat. My master desired of me to taste it, telling me that I was never going back to the English so that I ought to conform to the manner of the Indians. So I told him that I would obey. That was the story of a soldier from the siege of Fort Detroit called John Rutherford. Now, okay, we do think an awful lot of ourselves because we're British, therefore we would never do anything wrong, barely anything naughty in our whole lives. However, we're as sick as pretty much everybody else. And during the Crusades, when the whole plan was supposed to be to spread the word of God across the world, the Crusaders decided they were going to wipe out anybody who chose not to be a Christian and forgot all of the Christian rules and regulations about forgiving trespasses and all of that. Thou shalt not kill. Forgot all of them and tried to wipe out every heathen, in other words, anybody that wasn't Christian, that they came across. And during the very first crusade back in 1098, they defeated a massive Muslim army after they laid siege to Ma'ara, the Syrian city. The crusaders got in there and discovered there wasn't very much food. So they decided to cook on huge barbecues the very men that they defeated in battle. A lot of people say, well, it was because they were starving. But a lot of people say they were ordered to do so, so that any other Muslim armies around there, and there were plenty, would be terrified that the same thing would happen to them if they fought the Crusaders. Oh, here's another thing then. Skull caps. We call a skull cap a little cloth thing that we wear on our skull. Some people of a Jewish persuasion wear skull caps out of religious belief. However, just in case you think that cannibals are a modern phenomenon, we're going to take you back between 20 and 12,000 years ago. Results of research looking at the dead bodies of prehistoric man and woman, you can see that many of the skulls had been cleaned out, all of the soft tissue removed, and there are marks where people have eaten the things inside. You can see on their ribs, bite marks. On their thighs, human teeth marks. Now, you could argue again, was this because they were desperate for food or was man just another creature that they could eat along with pigs and sheep and cows and all the other things? What do you reckon? In recent years, the whole transgender thing has blown up and now we're getting closer to accepting everybody as whoever they are and whoever they seek to be. It's all cool, whatever floats their boat. However, it is legal in Japan to be an asexual. 
an artist, Mao Sugiyama, decided that as a asexual, which is not of any sex, he would have his genitals removed. And in 2012, he went into hospital and had his testicles and penis cut away and kept on ice so that he could serve them as a dish for a hundred thousand yen. Now that's only eight hundred and fifty-five dollars, which is probably about six hundred pounds. Now five diners sat down and ate Sugiyama's bits. They were served with button mushrooms and parsley. And here is how Sugiyama's original tweet offering his gonads red please retreat i'm offering my male genitals a full penis testes and scrotum as a meal for a hundred thousand yen i will prepare and cook as the buyer requests at his or her chosen location very businesslike and he got his hundred thousand yen and what's he got to show for it not a sausage now Everybody remembers this story because it's not that long ago. This guy was snorting, like cocaine, bath salts. And in 2012, Rudy Eugene was seen on a boardwalk attacking a 68-year-old vagrant called Ronald Popo, homeless in Miami, and all of it was caught on one of the CCTV cameras. An 18-minute attack with Eugene ranting at Popo, telling him that he'd stolen his Bible, which he patently hadn't. Then he beat him unconscious and ate raw most of his face, leaving him alive but blind. His nose was gone, his lips were gone, his eyes were chewed out of his head. The Miami Zombie. And again, go to Florida on your holidays. One of the favourite places for anybody to go. And that could have happened to you. Now, OK, if you had to eat a member of your family, who would it be? Would you go for a nice, tender little child? Would it be a slightly tougher, would maybe more substantial mother or grandmother? Well, Lino Renzi was arrested in 2013, you see, these are not a long time ago, he killed his elderly mother and he'd been eating her for about two and a half months. Renzi had psychiatric problems, I think that's a given, and he killed his mum after they were arguing about the house that they shared. When the police eventually burst in looking for mum, they found her boiling part of her in the oven, some of her in the freezer, and more bits of flesh floating in a blood-soaked bath in the bathroom. A month before he killed his mum, he was released from prison after committing various atrocities, and he'd used prescription drugs to make her woozy so that he could ultimately kill and eat her. You might say, well, eat your girlfriend, okay, or your boyfriend, because, frankly, people use those terms about various sex acts. I want you to eat me. You know, they don't mean eat me. 
Well, maybe Joseph Oberhansley, 33-year-old man from Indiana in the States, maybe he just got it all wrong. In 1998, when he was only 17, he was convicted of manslaughter and attempted murder of killing his girlfriend and for the shooting of his own mam. He served 14 years before being released. 14 years for two killings because he was only 17. Well, obviously, he didn't know what he was doing. He was just a child. So now he's in his 30s. And in 2014, when his live-in girlfriend, Tammy Blanton, decided she'd had enough of him and changed the locks on him, he kicked his way into her apartment and stabbed her to death with a tiny pocket knife. This is a minute thing. It must have took hours for her to die. And after she was murdered, as I say, it must have took a long, painful and agonising time, he cooked various parts of her body and he ate them. He got a, a joiner's jigsaw to cut open the skull so that he could feast on her brains. He had them raw because they were nice and slippery. Now I'm only going to share one more with you because they're all fairly disturbing. But this one is a story about whales. And only a few years ago, Matthew Williams met a beautiful girl 22-year-old Keris Yem in a pub and he chatted her up and things went well and he said, oh, I'm not here for very long. Would you like to come up to my hotel room? Mm. She agreed, expecting a bit of kissing, a bit of sexing. But once Williams got her in his hotel room, he attacked her viciously, killed her, and then, with a knife, scraped off all of the flesh from her face and ate it, adding one of her eyes just to see what it tasted like. The police were called to the scene, tried to arrest him, but they had to taser him. When he was arrested finally and dragged into custody, he died, not giving any kind of justice to the family of Keris Yem. So when you think cannibalism is a thing from back then, I think I've proven that it's as modern a crime as it ever was. Now, let me take you back to school. Don't know what your school days were like, but many people claim it to be the, the best days of their lives. Wasn't mine, might have been yours. But there seems to be two main reasons for parents to send their children to boarding school. First, for the children to obtain as fine an education as possible. And secondly, to get the youngsters out of their hair. Reasons not to do so, and not advised in any brochure, include intimidation, bullying, torture, rape and murder. I was told a story that would turn any caring parent's hair white by a man called Ernie Comerford from Billinge, whose great-grandfather had been one of the caretakers 
at an exclusive boarding school for ladies at Rainford in Merseyside. As always, the accounts vary, so I'll tell you the horrifying version that was first told to me. On the 25th of October in 1854, Isabella Smallwood left her home in Manchester full of trepidation. Not only was she going to stay away from her family for the very first time, but she really was heading into the unknown. A girls' boarding school. No comfortable private bedroom, no privacy at all, no freedom. All these exchanged for a dormitory and strict rules so as to transform this impressionable 15-year-old into the sophisticated lady that her father so wanted her to be. Now, the school had a good reputation, and its results had always been quite admirable. Yet Isabella had a feeling that something was not right. The school's institution was, by today's standards, a fairly mild affair. She was made to run the length of the school perimeter in her frilly cotton underwear in a fierce rainstorm. And as she ran around, her clothes became increasingly see-through, but as it was an all-girls school, she didn't think too much of it. However, the teachers, many male, were all looking on from their study, and such matters seemed of particular interest to one lecturer, Mr. R. V. Sinclair. Sinclair was a quiet man in his middle forties, with a balding pate and a sympathetic manner. Many girls over the years became very attached to him and would often ask for his help in solving problems of very intimate natures. It was not long before Isabella's initial reservations faded and she relaxed. A raven-haired beauty. She excelled at most things and became as popular as any girl in the school. Izzy, as she was known, was made captain of the school sports team and eventually became head girl with the added responsibility of representing any of the girls who had any difficulties. And this she relished, attacking every problem with such enthusiastic gusto that it was soon overcome. Every problem but one. One of the younger girls, a tiny little thing called Eve Mortimer from Carlisle, had broken down in tears, claiming that she'd been attacked by Mr Sinclair, as he couldn't believe that such a gentle man would assault one of the tiny children in his care. Eve described how he had given her a portion to help with a severe headache. The medicine had certainly eased her pain to the degree of making her dizzy, and Sinclair had put her on a chaise long and loosened the buttons at the top of her blouse. It was around this time that she drifted off to sleep. During her slumbers, she was aware of a heavy weight pressing down on her, but couldn't remember too much about it. When she awoke, Mr Sinclair was sitting beside her, looking very flushed and stroking her face. Eve said she felt very sore down below, and as she eased her legs from the couch, her legs almost buckled. 
She even went so far as to thank Mr Sinclair and made her way back to the dormitory to carry out his suggestion that she take a hot bath. She felt most queer. Eve told Izzy, and she felt damp in her pants, and the more she walked, the damper she became, and she was embarrassed about this, believing that she'd wet herself, not realising for one moment that something far more sinister had happened to her. The day after this occurred, Sinclair ordered Eve to meet him in his office, He'd spoken to a doctor in town on her behalf. He told her, once again, that the doctor had instructed her to take a portion. And once again, the world became black and she lapsed into unconsciousness. And then, one Wednesday afternoon, Sinclair called Eve to him and said, "'Well, Eve, I have to tell you that what you have been doing is very wrong and I must punish you.' The young Cumbrian girl had no idea what he was talking about, for she was certainly one of the school's most dedicated pupils. Sinclair continued, You egged me on to have sex with you time and time again, and for that I must discipline you. The girl almost collapsed with shock, and suddenly it all fell into place. She knew that she had not initiated anything, and that he had abused her. Yet here he was with a cane, about to assault her further. She tried to run from his study, but he restrained her, forcing her over his desk and swished a stiff bamboo cane across her rear end. He swore her to secrecy, threatening harsher punishments should she spread any lies or stories about him. Sinclair was frightened and constantly intimidated Eve by turning up to watch her take part in sport, walking into her dormitory late at night and occasionally giving her a thrashing for giving a staff member a dirty look, failing to shine her shoes or depressive behaviour. She had a good reason to be depressed. She was being tortured and raped and seemed powerless to do anything about it. Eve's last desperate chance was Izzy, and she felt better for having shared her burden. Izzy demanded a meeting with the principal, and this came to the ears of the staff, who were all agog to hear what was so important. Everyone except Sinclair, who was taken ill and returned to his lodgings in town. Eve, little Eve, also disappeared. So when the meeting went ahead, Izzy's allegations were not taken as seriously as they would have been had she been there. The school board agreed to talk to both Eve and Mr Sinclair when they were both available. Sinclair dismissed the charges out of hand, his record was spotless, and the school board had no proof whatsoever. Eve never returned to the school. The principal wrote to her parents saying that Eve had run away from school after circulating lies about one of the teaching staff and was clearly too embarrassed to return and probably was making her way home. She never reached home. The police were called, searches carried out, yet no sign of the girl was ever found. Izzy knew in her heart she was dead.
At the time of her disappearance, workmen had been adapting some of the rooms, putting in new fireplaces. And it's thought that the strangled body of Little Eve may well be walled up there, so the body would cook in the heat, and any smell of decay from the corpse would simply go up and out the chimney. The school no longer exists. It has long since been replaced by a pub called the Golden Lion, where Little Eve has been spotted by several customers, and usually around the fireplace, as if beckoning strangers to come and discover her final resting place. And now something very different and something downright peculiar. I want to tell you about the warning mist of Llandelo in Wales. If the mist comes in the night, a death will follow. So say many of the good people of Divid in Wales. And it seems to have a great deal of substance to it, although we have details of over 20 cases, ranging as far afield as Llanethly, Carmarthen, Llandovery and Swansea. The epicentre of this mystery is Llandelo, overlooked by the Black Mountains. Now, trying to track down the very beginnings of this legend was far from easy, but it was cracked with the help of a Welsh farmer called Hugh Jones who worked the land near Ammonford for over 50 years back in the 1930s. He had told his son Michael the story and he in turn passed it down to his son as had been done since 854. Because it all began in that year. Welsh Druidism was a powerful force within the community and their leader was an evil man with a twisted lip called Sheba. Those whose respect he could not gain would suffer a tragedy in the family. A child would vanish and would later be found dead at the bottom of the cliffs at Capel Gwynf. Once three druids were seen by passers-by hacking a young boy to death with axes and then burying the body in a shallow grave at Salem. The locals knew this was going on, but they feared for their own lives, so they kept quiet, merely paying their respects to the Druids, so that they or their families would not be declared victims themselves. The last straw was when Sheba said, that he would be making human sacrifices to guarantee a good harvest. He told the local villagers to nominate someone or else they would march into the town and take a child. This did not disturb only the villagers. Many of the Druids felt it was against their creed, but none dared stand up against Sheba, who had, due to too much power, transformed into a bit of a psychotic maniac. The local community were appalled, and small groups gathered to plot against Sheba. But there were over 500 druids at the time, and surely no gathering of a dozen farmhands could possibly come out victors in such a one-sided contest. Word of their plans reached Sheba, and on the night of the 5th of August, 854, 
40 of Sheba's best men, armed with pitchforks, swords and axes, set out to silence the dissenting mob. The homes belonging to the plotters were identified, and one by one they were surrounded, and each home set on fire. As the families raced out, they were hacked to death. In one case, a five-year-old child was first to emerge, and he was hardly through the door before he'd been decapitated with a swing of a druid axe. Over 40 people died that night. Ten homes lay in ashes, and the entire area knew that they were not to meddle with the druids. Three days later, a woman in her 60s returned to her home in Tlandelo to find it burned to the ground. Saron Roche, who was a great-grandmother, was known to the people thereabouts as a holy woman. In modern-day parlance, I suppose you'd call her a white witch. It had been presumed that she had been one of the incinerated bodies found in the house the following morning. But she had spent a week with family in Bethlehem, just up the valley. To discover that all of her relatives had been wiped out caused a change in this usually kind woman, and she set off to face Sheba, who lived near the river Afontawi, on the outskirts of the town. She hammered on his door, and with such fury that a crowd soon gathered, many of them druids, and Sheba stepped out carrying a sacrificial dagger. "'Was it you who butchered my family?' asked Saron. The druid smiled widely at seeing this tiny, plump woman. It was a warning to everyone not to dare plot against me, came his sneering reply. The woman reached inside a tiny leather pouch and produced some white powder and sprinkled it in the air around her, saying, Now you cannot harm me. Shiba gave a loud belly laugh. I suppose that dust will save you from this knife. She nodded as she bent down to pick up a stone and then fumbled in the pouch for a tiny flint. I will live forever, for that is my task, and in life I am sworn to help people, not to kill them. However, in death I will punish you for all what was done to my family that night. The twisted face of Sheba contorted into a puzzled expression as the old woman struck the stone against the flint and a spark set the dust on her clothes alight and she exploded into a ball of flame. The crowd gasped in amazement as they watched her skin burn, crack and fall away from her bones. All the while she was shouting at Sheba, and now you're mine, reaching out her small chubby arms until all of the clothing and skin had gone and the only thing reaching from the flame was a long skeletal finger barely a yard from Sheba's face. By this time, hundreds of people were watching as the body, instead of turning into ash, became a cloud of grey-gold smoke that just seemed to hang over the ground. Sheba was ash-white himself, and he turned to the throng, saying, You see, the hag was so terrified of my wrath that she chose to take her own life. 
No sooner had the druid uttered what proved to be his final words than the smoke had begun to wrap itself around him. It then poured up his nose and into his mouth until all of the smoke had vanished completely. He fell to the floor, writhing around, and his skin began turning the grey-gold colour of the smoke, and he began to shake as if he were having a violent fit. He rolled towards the river, and much as he tried to scream and claw his way back away from it, some invisible force dragged him in to the river. His mouth was open, but his words just never came out, and something seemed to hold him beneath the surface as the air left him to be replaced with water. The eyes that had shown so much contempt for the old woman now stared into nothingness. Druids began tearing off their robes, hurling them into the river Efontoui, and running back to their homes... As the people looked on, Shiva's body shot out of the water, landing on the very spot where Saron Roche had taken her life. Above the river they could see the mist circling, and they heard a voice crying, Let death never creep upon you again, for I shall warn you of its coming. Now, yes, it all sounds really far-fetched. Yet many stories have since emerged from as far back as 1788 about a strange mist and a knocking on windows to warm of forthcoming deaths in the family. And this was commonplace and expected right the way up until the 1920s. And then, for some reason, it wasn't replicated again until the late 1950s when a spate of stories came out, some featured in local newspapers, about how this death mist had appeared presaging a death. Let me tell you just a few. In 1978, a visitor to Tlandelo called into the King's Head Hotel, and during a quiet pint, he saw this strange golden grey fog, and he felt suddenly quite frightened. At first he thought it was just cigarette smoke or cigar smoke. But from the way that it twisted and moved, he realised it was something very different. On returning to his home two days later, he discovered that his mother and father had both died in a car crash. Coincidentally, the manager of the King's Head Hotel did tell locals around that time that he had witnessed a strange fog on a couple of occasions. This he put down to the ghost of a customer who was supposedly pushed out of a window to her death in the 1830s. In 1983, Malcolm Addison, a double-glazing salesman from Swansea, was in the area with a team of workers canvassing for work. And when he pulled up in his Volkswagen at the side of the road near Fairfax, he was filling in his report forms and he had to pull down his sun visor for the sun's rays were so strong. And then suddenly, it was as if someone had switched off the sun. It really was that fast, he said. And then it turned as black as pitch. I looked up and the car was totally surrounded by what I thought was a bit of a brownie fog, but it was moving round and round the car. It was as if it was stirring around me. And I even wound the window down and put my hand out into it. 
and I could make a hole in it and see bright daylight on the other side and then, as if it had a mind of its own, it moved away and I could see it in my rear-view mirror moving off down the lane. And all of a sudden, I felt filled with dread as if I knew something was was wrong, very wrong. So I drove into Tlandelo and I phoned home. Thankfully, everything was fine, or so I thought. When I did get home, though, there was a letter waiting for me, telling me that my best friend, the best man at my wedding, Brian Charles, had just suffered a stroke and died. In November 1992, I was playing captaining a charity football match at Gateshead International Stadium with the likes of Kevin Keegan, Frank Bruno, Eddie the Eagle Edwards, American wrestler Rowdy Roddy Piper and many, many more. Our team had lost but I'd managed to grab three goals, fairly pleased with how things had gone, raised a bit of money for people who needed it. So as I made my way to the car, signing as many autographs as I could, I was handed a note from a young girl. Couldn't read it then, I read it later. And Claire's note told me of how her mother had a premonition about her husband's death, Claire's dad. With it was a newspaper cutting that read, Dorothy Taylor knew her husband was going to die. Three days earlier, she had seen a misty shape that had told her there was to be a death. Her husband Cliff had been ill for almost a year and she knew he was about to die. Dorothy said today, It gave me time to say all of the things I wanted to tell him and to make sure that I gave him all of my time and all of my love. I thought no more of this until I saw Claire waiting for me at another guest appearance when she told me that her mother was Welsh originally coming from Llandovery, just to the northeast of Llandelo. So, strange mists, magical stories, and don't forget, tales of Alan Mouth and the pirates who came in to murder from the fog. Lots of stories, lots of things waiting for you right here on Robson's World. I hope you have a scout about and enjoy some more incredible stories best listened to in the dark and late at night some of our three and four hour adventures where we travel to other parts of the world where you can hear the sound of spirit it's waiting for you right here on Robson's World please spread the details to all you know so that we can continue bringing stuff like this to you Until next time, from me, Alan Robson, God bless you, and I wish you well.